Biden's IRA has enabled a battery deal boom in the U.S., private equity sues the SEC over transparency rules and regulation overstepping, and China has banned iPhones in all government agency workplaces. I'm Jackson Fordyce, and this is Venture Daily. Biden's 2022 Inflation Reduction Act continues to enable large investments into U.S. tech production. The latest sector to see huge growth is U.S. battery cell production. On Wednesday, several companies announced noteworthy investments into the battery cell production sector, citing the IRA as a significant contributing factor to making these deals possible. One of the deals includes Daimler Truck, Cummins, and Packar, who are announcing a joint venture to invest 2 to $3 billion in battery cell production for commercial vehicles and industrial uses. Another deal is between BlackRock and Temasek, who are investing $542 million into battery materials firm Ascend Elements. Amon's Wealth Fund also joined the funding splurge, as has invested an undisclosed amount in a U.S.-based battery company called Our Next Energy. Axios' Ben Jemin spoke with Thomas Frey, a spokesperson for Ascend Elements, who said that the 2022 climate law is, quote, absolutely increasing demand for our sustainable engineered battery materials, unquote. To get more insight into how Biden's climate law is impacting the battery production industry in the U.S., I spoke with Oliver Libby. Hi, it's Oliver Libby, a managing partner and co-founder at HL Ventures here in New York. Oliver, can you tell us how the IRA is encouraging battery manufacturing growth in the United States? Yeah, it's a great question, and it's one of the most exciting new frontiers, uh, or well, let's say a very exciting frontier in the energy future for the country. So one of the critical components to a new energy future for America is going to be battery storage. And that battery storage is as local as something that might be in your house and as large as something that might eventually be something we call a flow cell battery or something that would be at the grid level. The reason this is important is because a lot of the ways in which we're generating energy that are climate-friendly also are what we call intermittent. That is to say the sun isn't shining all times during the day or the wind isn't blowing all times during the day, et cetera. And so the best way that we can make this fit in with the energy needs of our country and make sure that we have reliable and safe power all day long is to ensure we can store that power. That also helps us, by the way, mitigate some of the most, uh, some of the craziest uh, price peaks and valleys that happen during the intraday when you're dealing with energy, which is uh, one of the toughest things for people, consumers and businesses to deal with. So it's really, really Really important for us to get support for the uh, for batteries and uh, and for uh, power storage, and that's one of the most exciting things about the new legislation we've gotten, the IRA and other key bills, which provide a lot of support for both fundamental research and also deployment of battery systems. News from Wednesday highlights that Daimler Truck, Cummins, and Packard are investing two to three billion dollars into battery cell production. BlackRock and Temasek are investing $542 million into battery materials firm Ascend Elements, and Amman's Wealth Fund is investing in Our Next Energy. Do these investments narrow the gap between the U.S. and China in the battery production market? Yes, look, I mean, most of the advanced battery battery technologies that have been created in the last 50 years have come from U.S. fundamental research. And one of the saddest things about that as someone who lives here in the States is we've turned over the manufacturing and optimization of those technologies to places like China. And so, yes, some of these fundamental large investments we're seeing now are a critically important process of our national competitiveness. The other thing that's really important about that is, again, Batteries are going to be fundamental almost everywhere. Today, of course, we deal with batteries in our cell phones, batteries in our technology, but rapidly we are seeing batteries be deployed on the walls of our garages or in uh, entire floors of uh, office and commercial buildings. We're seeing batteries, of course, in cars and not just the old car battery, but now entire battery uh, powered, of course, 
towards electric vehicles, of course, we're going to see deployment of, of grid scale batteries as well. So very, very important for these investments that you mentioned and others that are coming down the pike, some with government support and some just pure commercial decisions uh, to help us push forward the deployment of batteries in almost every sector of power consumption in our country. If Republicans win in 2024 and roll back Biden's climate law, what could that mean for battery production domestically? Well, there's a couple of things, right? I mean, I think that the deployment of batteries uh, at scale in new parts of our economy, so the things we've already talked about today, is is inevitable, right? I think it's going to happen. But two really important parts of the federal support for this are fundamental research. So there's new battery chemistries that could be really exciting, more cost efficient, particularly for those really big batteries that we need at the grid scale. So not everything will be lithium ion batteries or the old uh, uh, battery technologies that have powered, uh, you know, uh, batteries for 50 plus years. Right. And so that fundamental research really depends on a lot of government support. And so we've seen exciting programs at ARPA-E, for example, that have received uh, renewed funding and some of this legislation. If we slow down in that fundamental research, we're giving up the lead in a lot of these things. Equally important, the deployment of these new, especially the larger battery programs, is going to require project finance. It's going to require some risk mitigation, and there's always benefit and acceleration to getting support from government funding in that respect. So, for example, things like matching fund programs of incentives, tax incentives, can really help us deploy those technologies farther and faster. So what it means if we lose the support from these bills and and from generally government support for battery deployment is, number one, slower and less exciting research that leads of course to a less exciting commercial environment and also a slower pace to deploy these technologies at scale neither one of those things is good for our country oliver big picture what is the most important takeaway surrounding the battery production conversation in the united states i think it's a great question to end on jackson you know uh Batteries are, I think, the fundamental unlock to actually ushering in an energy future. So it, it might be the most important topic in all of energy. And so the things we need to keep uh, our eye on are uh, a combination of making sure that we stay in uh, the lead in terms of battery innovation. And that can be done also with our key allies. We need to be deploying that technology and building those batteries to the extent that we can here in the domestic U.S. So a few things we need to pay attention to there. First of all, we need to remain supportive of fundamental battery research. And that is something that's done at the government level, universities, and with private industry and early stage startups all across the country. Number two, though, we can't just invent new battery technologies and then send it overseas for building, right? So we need to be building these batteries to some extent here in the U.S. or within our allies. And last but not least, we need to deploy those things with an accelerated velocity here in our country and make sure that we're actually getting the benefits of that research and that manufacturing here at the grid scale, in homes, in vehicles, and in the devices that power our lives every day. That was Oliver Libby, co-founder and managing partner at HL Ventures. Thanks for joining the show again, Oliver. Thanks so much for having me. Great to talk to you. In February of 2022, the SEC proposed new transparency rules for private funds in order to protect pension funds, limited partners, and other private market investors. Private equity industry was not happy with the proposed rules, and their lobbyists went to work 18 months ago to limit regulation efforts. We won't bore you with the details as they are complicated, but for the most part, those efforts were successful. Today's transparency rules are a significantly watered-down version of what was proposed last February. However, yesterday, six trade groups operating in the interest of private equity filed a lawsuit looking to block the SEC and the private equity advisor's role within the transparency rules. They argue the SEC has overstepped its authority in regulating private funds. The bottom line is that private equity is not even happy with the watered-down version of the SEC's regulation and would prefer no regulation at all. To get a clear understanding of this lawsuit and what it could mean for the regulation of private equity, I spoke with Brian Corbett. Brian Corbett, President and CEO of the Managed Funds Association. We represent the global alternative asset industry. 
Prior to his role at Managed Funds Association, Brian was a partner at Carlisle for almost 12 years and before that served for two years as a special assistant to President George W. Bush during his second term. Brian, can you walk us through the lawsuit filed last week? Why is this important and how will blocking the SEC from implementing its private fund advisors rule benefit private funds? Last week, MFA was one of several large trade associations suing the SEC uh, to challenge the private funds rule. And we were really suing for three reasons. First, we believe the SEC exceeded its statutory authority. For the first time, the SEC is injecting itself in the middle of negotiations between private funds and large, sophisticated investors. The SEC is trying to apply more of a mutual fund-like framework that's meant for retail investors on private funds. Second, we think the SEC rule is completely unworkable. It's going to raise costs, it's going to undermine competition in the markets, and it's going to result in less fund choice for pensions, endowments, and foundations who are looking to generate returns for their beneficiaries. If you think of a new emerging manager that's launching, they have to comply with this rule, which is going to require a lot of cost, a lot of resourcing. Also, the rule effectively prevents that new fund from negotiating preferred terms with an anchor investor, which makes it harder to raise capital. So new fund losses are going to go down. New funds are likely going to be pushed out of the market. Uh, And lastly, we don't think the SEC did its homework with this rule. Um, We don't think they did an adequate cost-benefit analysis to justify the rule, nor did they point to a major market event that justifies the rule. I understand that LPs and retail investors are very different. LPs in most cases have been long-term participants in the private markets and have lawyers to navigate dense contracts. Why then would they need regulation from the SEC to protect them with fund oversight rules? Jackson, that's a great question. In fact, we don't think they need the SEC to intervene. And I think Congress in the past has said that the SEC should not intervene on behalf of these large, sophisticated investors. Uh, Our managers, private funds, our large institutions, They're negotiating investments from big pension funds. The SEC has tried to create this false narrative where the private fund is on one side of the negotiation and retail investors through the pension fund are on the other side. That's just not the case. When a pension fund makes an investment in a private fund, it's the chief investment officer of the pension fund. They rely on lawyers, accountants, bankers, and consultants to make an investment decision of several hundred million dollars. This is not a situation where mom and pop retail are buying a share of a mutual fund. So we really object to the SEC's approach of applying a regulatory framework for mutual funds to the private fund industry. How in the past have we seen the SEC step in and regulate private funds? Would people within the industry say regulation is healthy for the private financial sector? industry today is heavily regulated. In 2008, Congress passed the Dodd-Frank Act, which requires private funds over $150 million in AUM to register with the SEC. And registration with the SEC entails a whole host of reporting requirements. It opens you up to examinations by the SEC. So there's a, a large regulatory framework in place today for the private fund industry. In addition, when a sophisticated investor like a pension fund makes an investment into a private fund, they negotiate for additional disclosure and reporting requirements from the private fund. So the industry has a lot of regulation by the SEC. They have a lot of reporting obligations to their large investors. So we really feel like 
the proposals that the SEC has put forth, including the private fund rules, are excessive and will really undermine the ability of the private industry to continue to grow and thrive and provide returns for their pension, endowment, and foundation clients. Brian, last question. There's a lot of nuance to this lawsuit, more than we can cover in just a few minutes. So in the interest of time, what's a question you wish I asked you today that best helps our audience understand the context of this story? Jackson, I think what's important not to lose sight of in the private fund industry is this rule we're talking about is one of 20 rules that the SEC has proposed targeting investment advisors. Uh, So we're focused on this litigation. It's, It's front of mind, but we shouldn't lose sight of the overall rulemaking effort that the SEC is targeting at private funds. Uh, It's important that the SEC look at how all of these proposed rules work together. What's the overall compliance cost? How are funds going to implement all these rules? How are the rules interconnected? And one of the big concerns we have is that as these rules come online, they could undermine the competitiveness of our capital markets and really chip away at our lead uh, as, as the premier global capital market. That was Brian Corbett, president and CEO of the Managed Funds Association. I really appreciate your time, Brian. Thanks so much. Great. Thank you, Jackson. China has banned iPhones at work in all government agencies. According to a recent report from the Wall Street Journal's Yoko Kubota, China is banning the use of iPhones or other foreign-branded devices at its government agencies. Staffers were told by their superiors this week that they could no longer use any foreign tech in the office. This is the latest move from Beijing to reduce reliance on foreign technology, enhance the country's cybersecurity protocols, and limit the flow of Chinese information to other nations. The news has significantly hurt Apple's stock. Since Tuesday, Apple has dropped over 5%. On Wednesday, it was the worst performer in the Dow Jones Industrial Average, and the company's reportedly lost over $200 billion just this week. And if the ban of Apple products extends past government workplaces in China, Apple could take a big hit as the country makes up about 19% of its overall revenue. The journal highlights that China's recent ban on iPhones mirrors Washington's own bans on Huawei technologies and TikTok. As more is discovered about China's evolving posture towards American tech, we'll be sure to keep you updated here at Venture Daily. Thanks for tuning in to Venture Daily. Today's show is produced by Josiah Simons and Jackson Fordyce. Our theme song was created by Benjamin Cook. If you liked today's episode, please give us an honest review wherever you get your podcasts. I'll see y'all next week.